So winter's coming, fall's here, right? And we get to do what we do in the fall. I guess everybody does it. Isn't it crazy that you do something so you assume everybody else does it, which makes you normal? I think that's probably one of the worst assumptions we could make. But in the fall, in the spring, we have a changing of the closets at um, the Melick house where the shorts and all the summer clothes, they go up to a different closet and all the sweaters and all the jackets, they come out and sort of things change. Now, the reason we have to change is because we don't have a lot of space. And my closet's downstairs, as I've mentioned that uh, to you before. I'm still not mad about it. It's just the way that it is. But when I go to my closet, I have to go downstairs. And so yesterday, Saturday, we were doing the changing of the closets because the fall is coming. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to be gone for a while because I have to go get my clothes out for church and for stuff. And it's going to get cold. And the weather says 26 degrees next week. And she said, all right. So I go downstairs into the basement to my closet and, uh, and I'm changing. And I, I like to do things um, neat and orderly. Um, I like to have some kind of order just because things in life seem to get a little bit crazy. And if you have things kind of ordered at home, it just kind of, I don't know, gives you a feeling of me anyway, security and peace and takes the stress off. And so my closet's one of those things I like to have in order. Got to have the shoes lined up where they go. I hang up all my shirts and stuff and my pants. And I like hangers instead of folding things because it's really hard to get things folded right and keep them neat. And um, I had everything done just exactly like I liked it. I have the shirts on one side, probably just exactly like you do. Jeans on the other, pants over here, coats down here. And Joy walks in about 30 minutes later and she's like, hey, Johnny Cash. And I said, that's an interesting thing for you to say to me. You've never called me that before. I said, first of all, he's pretty cool, but I think he's dead and that wasn't very nice. And um, I thought about Long Black Train and all that stuff. And she goes, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, your clothes. She goes, do you notice anything here? And I said, uh, what are you talking about, Joy? I'm not noticing things. I'm, I got my shades and everything all where they're supposed to be. And, and she said, have you noticed that everything in your closet is either black, gray, or occasionally navy blue? It's all the same shade. Have you noticed that you need a pop of color? Now, I don't think I want a pop of color. And my wife called it a pop of color, which unsettled me a little bit. But she told me without any question, you need a pop of color. And so I think we may go shopping for a pop of color. But beyond that, I started thinking about the state of our closets and thinking, you know, many of our closets, the closets in our home, also the closets in our lives become the same shade. Black or gray, the occasional navy. And some of us need a pop of color. We get stuck in a rut. We tread water, we get complacent. We get lethargic, we get bored. And sometimes we allow that to creep into our relationship with the Lord. It becomes a cycle. And somebody has to come in and look at our closet and say, you need a pop of color. That's what we're going to do today. This is the eighth week in our happiness series. And by the way, the happiness series is eight weeks long. Next week, we start Thanksgiving, and we're going to talk about all the things we have to be thankful for and the reasons we have to be thankful. But this week is the last week we're going to talk about happiness. Now, this last week, I've been asking everybody I've come in contact with this question, and you know that hanging out with me is always 
probably never a lot of fun, but I mean, um, when it gets closer to the sermon, probably even less fun because I'm always asking you questions that relate to what I'm teaching. And I asked the question to so many different friends this last week. I mean, to people who I was hanging out with at coffee and lunch, to our fire department up here at uh, uh, Sailor Township. I asked some of our staff. I asked some of you guys in church. I said, are you happy? And then I waited expectantly for the answer because the title of the message today is, is are you happier than eight weeks ago? Are you growing in happiness? Is your, soft, or your heart getting softer? Are you becoming more gentle? Are you more encouraged? Are you more optimistic? Are you growing? Are, are we becoming a little more jaded, a little more guarded, a little more cynical, a little more distant, perhaps even defensive? And as my friends answered this question, and I would say it was probably split 60-40. Say 60 saying, yeah, I'm happy. 40 saying, no, I'm not happy. When I asked the question why, a person or circumstance was the reason. This is going on in my life. It was a person who had wounded, hurt, or disappointed us. A circumstance that didn't meet our expectations, that was making it difficult for us to be happy in the moment. And as I was praying and thinking about the message today, how it is we're gonna land this plane, this eight weeks of happiness, I wanted to talk to you about that. Once again, remind you that people and circumstances won't make you happy. That living for the glory of God, that's the secret. And the apostle Paul knew better than anybody else how to live a life that way. But I'm telling you what, he did it the hard way. So we're gonna look together. We're gonna look at Philippians 1 for the last time for a while. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, the apostle Paul says, and this is my prayer. Now. Remember way back eight weeks ago, two months ago, back when we weren't as happy as we are today, but since we've grown over the last seven weeks, we're much happier today than we were seven weeks ago. When we started talking about this, the fact that this is a prayer from a pastor to his congregation, this pastor knowing exactly what he's talking about means that it's a supernatural thing that he's asking for. And secondly, that it's a very practical or natural thing that it should be happening in the church, in the people who he's talking to or praying for. He says, this is my prayer. And he prayed with confidence. He says that your love may abound more and more. That was week one that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. That was week two, depth of insight. We talked about for an entire week what that meant. That was week three. So you may be able to discern, that was week four, what's best and then what's pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. That our lives would be filled with right thoughts with right attitudes, with right actions that honor Jesus and point toward the glory of God. But you and I get complacent. The shades of gray kick in. The cycles of life repeat themselves. The patterns, well, they're patterns for a reason. And the things that we struggle with and deal with today are no different than what people dealt with hundreds, even thousands of years ago. The Apostle Paul, by the time he penned Philippians, was an older man in prison, chained to a Roman guard, waiting for a fate that was uncertain from a human perspective, 
but certain from a divine perspective and wrote a letter from his heart to his congregation saying, this is the secret to happiness. Now, the apostle Paul, he reminisced, he thought, he learned, he was informed of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, one of his favorite stories was the story that I started with last week, the story of Moses, when we talked about Moses going into the wilderness of the desert for the first time. The apostle Paul would refer back to the children of Israel and to Moses and to the desert experiences. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he even wrote that the things about Moses and the children of Israel and the whole wilderness and desert experience, they were written to us so that we can learn. We can be aware of the patterns of life. We can guard against the things that creep in, trap us, rob our joy and steal our happiness. So I began to look even this week again at the patterns of the people that we're talking about. These Old Testament, this Old Testament people group, the children of Israel, and we know about their captivity in Egypt, and we know what happened when Moses, you know, killed the Egyptian. We talked about it last week, and he fled not into the desert for 40 years, and God brought him back, and there were plagues and miracles, and then Pharaoh said, let my people go. And so all of the children of Israel who had been enslaved and persecuted by their captors were freed and they were walking, you know, away from Egypt. And you know how you kind of walk and you don't want to seem like you're in a real hurry, but you know, God told them to hurry. So they're walking fast, right? And they they look behind them and the Egyptians are coming and they're like, oh my goodness. God said we were going to be free, but they're coming. They're going to kill us. They're going to take us back. They came up to a sea, the Red Sea. Didn't know what to do. God parted the Red Sea the children of Israel, God's miraculous provision, go through the Red Sea, get to the other side. You know the story. If you don't, well, you've probably seen the Charlton Heston movie on Moses, or maybe you've seen the Disney movie, and it's in the Bible. It's a great story. They get to the other side. Well, the Egyptians, they're like, well, if they can do it, we can do it. So they start through the, the parted sea, and then God closes the waters on them, and they're destroyed. And the children of Israel get to the other side. And this is where the pattern starts. This is what we learn from. This is what we have to prevent against. At first, they're happy. God provides. God saves. God gives the good gifts. God protected us from our captors. They even took Miriam and some of the women from this group of people, put them out front. They made up praise songs to God, spontaneously, banging tambourines, jumping around, doing whatever they would do, celebrating God's goodness. You and I probably relate to that. We're happy. God protects. God provides. God gives all the good gifts. You're feeling it. You're high-fiving other people. Isn't God good all the time? Isn't God good? Oh, yeah, he's good today, tomorrow, and forever. Our faith is strong. And then you know what happened to the children of Israel. Now, Paul, he looks back on them and he's like, we got to remember, we got to learn, we have to think. This is what happens. They wander out into the wilderness and because God provided, they fell into this, this entitled sort of a mentality where they felt two things were true. Number one, they shouldn't have to suffer anymore because God's going to provide and protect and give them blessing all the time. This expectation that God owes it to them and that it better come or else. And as the Bible tells this story, 
As Moses tells this story, the children of Israel wander out into the wilderness and they get hungry. And all of a sudden, this provision of God, the praise of his people, that crept into this entitled expectation was met with a need and the people began to grumble. Well, God, you're not the God I thought you were. I thought we got all this suffering behind us. I thought all the struggle was in the rearview mirror. Remember when you destroyed all the Egyptians and freed us from captivity? Now I'm supposed to have the abundant life. What gives? I'm hungry. So they grumble. They complain. But yet, gracious God provides for his hard-headed people like me and you. He gave them something to eat. He gave them quail. And he gave them manna. But he gave it to them conditionally in a way that made them rely on God and God's provision. And they ate and it was the best meat they ever have. And the manna, it was, well, the Bible says that angels came out and spread the manna in the camp of the Israelites. And they ate it and it was the best thing they ever had. As a matter of fact, it was called, what is it? That's what manna means because they didn't even know. God invented a food for them. And as they ate, they celebrated. God is the God who provides. And then they decided they didn't like manna and they didn't like quail. They were getting a little bored of eating the same thing every day. They felt entitled to God's blessing and begin to say something like this. Well, God, when you gave us that manna and that quail, it was really good. I mean, wild game dinner, who doesn't enjoy it? But you didn't tell us we were going to have to eat this every day for the rest of our lives. We want steak and we want lobster. We are entitled to better, entitled to more. Now, the pattern continued. The pattern of God's provision, the pattern of God's blessing, the pattern of praise from his people, the pattern of difficulty or problems, the pattern of expectation that turns into grumbling, that turns into dissatisfaction, that turns into, and the apostle Paul was looking back at his life, at the lives of the people in the church, at the lives of those in the Old Testament saying, we can't fall in to this pattern. We can't look at the external people, the external circumstances, the stuff in life to make us happy are obedient, or whether or not we live for the glory of God, there's more to it. Now, if you're like me, you say, so this Paul, this guy who's writing to me, I get the fact that you believe, pastor, that he was inspired by God and that God is giving us these words, and I believe that wholeheartedly. But who is this Paul? What's he know about suffering? What's he know about wilderness experiences? What's he know about the desert? If somebody's going to tell me, my happiness has to come from something beyond the things that I sense and feel and experience in my life. I want to know that this guy knows what he's talking about. And maybe you don't know so much about the Apostle Paul. If you haven't been told, you're not supposed to know. And so I just wanted to take for just a second a little deeper dive. I've been fascinated with this these last couple of weeks. Because after all, if somebody gives me advice, I want to know, are you qualified to give advice? 
I don't enjoy people who just pass out their opinions because they're in love with their opinions, who come in uninformed and just throw out their wisdom, thinking that you'll be blessed by it without taking the time to really experience and understand all of the variables and circumstances. A person's opinion is only as valuable as their experience and wisdom. And so I want to know, who is this guy? What does he have to tell me about wilderness experiences? What does he have to tell me about happiness? What's he experienced? I mean, after all, he seems kind of like a Bible boy. So I want to walk you through very quickly some of the things that the Apostle Paul had been through up to this point in his life. I want to bring some context to the weight of the words of this man who is in prison, house arrest, chained to a guard, writing a letter to a church he loved and wanted more than anything else to really understand the key to happiness. He was lowered out of a hole in a wall in Damascus, Acts chapter 9. Now, if you've studied the book of Acts, you know that Paul had just become a believer. He had just become a Christian, and people hated his guts. Right off the bat, instead of living this abundant life, this best life ever, this life where he had no problems, no stress, no persecution, no sadness, he wasn't living a charmed life. I mean, right off the bat, people wanted to kill him. Well, what did he do to deserve it? He followed Jesus. That brings a challenge to the way that some of us perceive our faith. But the Bible tells us that bad things happen to good people and also bad people. The Bible tells us that bad things happen. Jesus tells us that. That life is going to be tough in some times and it's going to be amazing in other times. And most of the time is somewhere in between. But there's no way to escape the trials, the difficulties, the pain in life. Sin caused it. All of us experience it. We just can't be shaken by it. The Apostle Paul became a believer. His life was threatened immediately and his friends had to lower him out of the hole in a wall so that he could slip away and continue breathing. Well, he was stoned in Lystra. That means that people threw rocks at him until, well, he was almost dead. He was beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi, which, by the way, is the city that he you know, started this church in and the letter he wrote back to so many years later. For the second time, he was attacked and arrested in Thessalonica. He was chased out of Berea in fear for his life. He was arrested again in Corinth beaten in Jerusalem. He was in a two-week-long storm that ended in shipwreck, and he got bit by a snake, which maybe that doesn't, that's like insult to injury. I don't, I'm, I'm a little, snakes freak me out. The shipwreck, two weeks worth of storms, you know, heading somewhere you don't want to go around people you don't want to be with. I get it. But the Bible says the dude was just getting firewood and he got bit by a snake and it was a poisonous snake. And everybody around him said, he's going to die for sure. And this is like the coolest story ever. Paul didn't even miss a beat. He just keeps on getting firewood. And in his mind, I'm sure he's thinking, well, this is my time. If I'm going to get taken out by a snake, then so be it. And he doesn't even get sick. He had developed that kind of faith. He was jailed in Rome. 
in Acts 28 allowed a pen or a quill or a ghostwriter wrote this letter to the Philippians and in another book in 2 Corinthians we find that in addition to all of these bad things that happened to him externally that he had one of those things in his life that he just couldn't get past or beyond. The Bible calls it a thorn. We don't know what it is. We're not supposed to know. So it can relate to you and to me. Could have been a relationship. Could have been a physical issue. I mean, it could have been anything. And he begged the Lord, take it away. The Bible says he asked three times specifically. I mean, do you have anything in life? I would just be happy if God would take this away. If God would make this go away, I'd certainly be happy. Oh, God, give me my happiness back by removing this from my life. Such a human thing to pray. The Apostle Paul, he prays, take it away, take it away, take it away. Jesus responded, no. But it wasn't a hateful, hurtful, distant kind of no. What he says is, my gracious favor is all you need. that my strength will be made known in your weakness. Now listen to this, friends. The world around us, they see how strong God is through the weak spots in our life, through the pain in our life, through the things we wish were different. And the Apostle Paul even let us know that these things can exist, can coexist and not rob us from our happiness or our joy. Friends, that's a power that you and I want so badly. And remember, it's supernatural. This is my prayer, but it's also possible. That's what he wanted for you. That's what he wanted for me. And man, I want that for you so badly that we've spent eight weeks talking about it. Let me just let you see from the Apostle Paul's own words how he described his own life. Five times I received from the Jews. This could be a country music song, by the way, or at least, at least a poem. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea, in danger from false <sighs> believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. My heart sometimes hurts because I want so badly for you guys to walk with God. And he pours his heart out. And then he writes these words. I mean, I'm trying to paint this picture of this guy, not superhuman, but living this supernatural life. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Now pay close attention to this. For I have learned to be content. You could put the word happy right here and be right in line with what this word means. 
I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being happy, content, at peace in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, we're living in plenty or in want. And here comes one of the most misused, abused, overused passages in all of scripture, so far out of context so many times that it's just absolutely disgusting. Let's bring it into perspective. I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. Now, don't you see that passage on a shirt? People wear it to the gym, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to lift 400 pounds. No, you're not. You're going to lift 90 pounds, and Jesus isn't going to give you the strength to go lift weights. He's going to give you the strength to endure, to thrive, to be happy, content, at peace, in the highs and the lows, in the in-betweens of life. Because we're living our life for the glory of God. And friends, that's power. And that's what the world has to see in a believer. Sometimes we get so concerned with knowing all the answers and out-arguing people and being right that we forget that people are watching the way we live far, far more than they're listening to what we say. So I look at this, these words from this great man who had really had a hard way to go in life, continuing to come back to the Lord, not dejected, not defensive, not bitter, jaded, cynical, pessimistic, but fully at peace, saying you can be happy. And when you face difficult times, remember. Well, let me take you back to one of the Apostle Paul's favorite stories. Let's close our time with this. From the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is writing to us about God's presence with his people in the middle of those valleys and stuck places in life. The children of Israel wandering around in the desert and this is a promise. It's a promise that I'm sharing with you. It's also a challenge. And it's found in Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12. In the desert land, now you can put whatever you want here in desert. We're not in a desert. We live in Des Moines. Farm country. I don't know what we would call the topography around us. Certainly not the desert. For those of you who vacation in Arizona, you're getting closer. Most likely the Serengeti was a little more like what we were talking about here back in the day. Don't get tripped up on the topography. Get tripped up on the, the imagery, the symbolism. What are the stuck places in your life? In the stuck places in your life, God finds you. Even if they seem barren and wind howls. He shields him, cares for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The first thing is pretty cool here, and this is what 
what God does for us in the middle of these times. He shields us. Well, what's that mean? You ever hear her? I've got Southern all of a sudden. You ever hear? Do you ever hear a Christian pray for a hedge of protection? Oh, God, put a hedge of protection around them. It sounds very supernatural and a little creepy in some ways. I put a hedge of protection around them. I don't, I don't know what that means necessarily. I hear a lot of people pray about it. I kind of get what, they, you know, what the point is. But it's kind of that, that hedge of protection. What this means is, is that God's running interference for you. That in the middle of your howling, barren, worst experiences, you might not see them. You may not be able to sense it, but you can bet your life on the fact that God is running interference for you. That he's out there. That he cares, that he knows, that he's engaged. The second thing, that he guards us. Now this is personal, right? He's out there as a perimeter fence. He's got our back. He's got you. He also guards you. What do you mean the apple of his eye? Well, better translation is the pupil of his eye. You ever been stuck in the eye by anything or anyone? It hurts. And when you get stuck square in the eye, everything in life stops until you get that eye pain to go away. When you get stuck, and I guess the pupil is the center, it's the important part. You have kids, you have pets. I mean, you get stuck sometimes in the eye. And I mean, you really, it, it changes your attitude. You protect the apple of your eye, the pupil. In the Bible, over and over again, especially the Old Testament, God refers to us as the apple of his eye, as the pupil of his eye, as the protected, prized possession that if you mess with, you're dealing with God himself. So he's out there, but he's also here. But sometimes I can't see you, God. Sometimes I can't feel you, God. That's part of the wilderness. It's part of being stuck. It's also one of the reasons why we have to have close and trusted friends in our life. Because friends, I can see God's hand in your life in ways you can't. You're too close. And you can see God's hand in mine in ways that, anyway, you get the picture. So this last little imagery is pretty cool here. Like an eagle, it stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. When I read this, I'm like, I gotta do a little more research. And so really this isn't as biblical as it is sort of Discovery Channel stuff, right? I mean, eagles, nests. I mean, this is what the eagles do. Eagle mamas apparently are pretty protective over their babies. Not just the US government, it turns out, that the eagles themselves will kill you if you try to mess with their kids. They circle the nest. They're out there in a perimeter watching. You try to attack, it gets personal in a hurry. But these mamas, when these babies begin to grow, well, they hover over them and try to get them to fly on their own. And when the time is right, stir up the nest and get these little babies to stretch their faith wings and begin to fly. And as these babies begin to fly, that mama and that daddy they fly right with them. And they celebrate those faith wings because that baby's growing up. But man, you mess with that baby and you get the parents and you get them in a hurry. 
And in verse 12, and this verse really got me, and this is what I want to leave you with today. The Lord alone, that's the word that's just like, that's just right here in my heart. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. Why? Because Israel had to rely, decide to rely only on him. The decision has to be made, who am I going to live my life for? Am I going to live for God's glory because of Jesus so that the righteous works that God does in and through me can be seen by the world around me so that they can find a saving relationship with God? Or am I going to live for myself? Leads us all the way back to that diverging trail that we talked about 30 minutes ago. We have to choose. And there's a war of attrition for your soul that will pull you back into the shades of black and gray. But the decision to live for God despite circumstance will set you free and you'll find true happiness. This last eight weeks has been a lot of fun. And I trust that perhaps our perspectives changed a little and we truly can say we're happy. Father, thank you for my friends.